So from right at the end of the book of Isaiah, if you have a church Bible with you, that's on page 613, or it'll come up on the screen for you. But Isaiah 53, starting at sentence 1, going through to sentence 7. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the word of God. Well, uh, good morning. It's good to have you here. My name's Gav. We haven't met. One of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for being here today. We're about to, uh, as Jez said here, God speaks. to us. who believe in the Bible is open. God speaks. That's what you hear every single week. Look at the Bible. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into it. God, we want to thank you uh, that you are here this morning among us, your people. Thank you that uh, you still speak to us today. Your word is living and active. And that right now we can hear the voice of our King, of our Creator. Lord, your word is food for our souls. And so, Lord, we want to pray right now for our own hearts that you'd be able to help us to sit and to listen and to understand what you want to say to us. We'd put all distractions aside and we would clearly hear your voice. Use me as your servant to speak truth and only your truth. Lord, bless our time we ask. Amen. Uh, last week was my youngest daughter's birthday, Sav. She turned six. Now, uh, she's growing really fast and, uh, of course, uh, she was so excited about her birthday. We'd planned a party for her. It was unicorn themed, as it is, unicorns. And so we haven't got a unicorn piñata for her, um, which I held in my hand and let 22 six-year-olds try and smash through the cricket stump. I thought I was going to lose my arm or break my arm, but I held on and it was okay. But Sav was so excited for her birthday, so much so that she asked my wife Katie to make a calendar for her three months out so she could count down the days till her birthday comes. And so each morning she'd wake up and she would cross one day off and get just as excited again that her birthday is coming. And each day she'd run in and find me and say, Daddy, 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 you know, guess how many days now? And I'm like, I don't know, Sav. She's like, 44? I'm like, next day, Daddy, how many? Like, she's like, 43? I'm like, great, Sav, cool. Like, that's a long way away. Anyway, uh, this went on almost every single day until her birthday arrived. And she'd even tell others, other people. She'd say to them, hey, guess how many days my birthday? And she'd say, 45. And they would go, oh, great. You know, and she's like, yeah. She was so excited. And it really just affected her mood. It, affected, it changed her whole mood. It changed her outlook on life. This future event coming, or her birthday, a sure event coming, made her so happy. And it affected how she lived, living up to that day. And I wonder, what do you look forward to in life? 
I don't know about you, but as I get older, I think, I, sadly, I get less excited over things. Just yeah, dropping his lollies in front there. You go. Yeah, yeah, you just, okay, mate, just, you just got four of them. You've got to pick them up. You can get them. It's okay, buddy. Hold on to them. Anyway. Give you one task, Jeremy. Um, I think as I got older, I get less excited over, over things in the future. I've lost that childlike excitement or anticipation. And what creeps in for me is worry or fear or anxiety at the unknown. What's going to happen? And we can start not looking forward to much in life. We go through the motions and day in, day out, and just almost switch to survival mode. I'm just trying to get through one day, scared of what may come tomorrow. Life can disappoint us. Life can let us down and hurt us. And so we just sort of look in and get scared of the future. As I mentioned previously, I, uh, I had three weeks off in the middle of the year. And it was a lovely time away. But about three weeks later, after the holiday had finished, that holiday that I had was like a distant memory. A friend of mine who's a psychologist, uh, we were chatting about this. And he said to me, uh, research shows that the effects of a holiday wear, wear off two weeks later, apparently. And he said to me, he said to me, what you need to do, Gav, is you need to start planning your next one. I'm like, what? And he said, well, again, research shows that uh, when you look forward to something, when you plan what's the next event that you get excited about, it actually affects your mood now, like sad with a birthday party. As I've mentioned, we are working, as Jez mentioned, we're working through this series, this series called The Story of the Bible. And we're saying that this, this story is one cohesive story all culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're really, we're really trying to help you to understand the Bible for yourself. We want you to be able to open the Bible and wherever you go to, understand how it fits in context. And so you understand it, understand who God is and how it points to Jesus. And today we come to this last section in the Old Testament. We've been seeing God's plan unfold, his rescue plan unfold since back here. Unfold week after week. And today we jump to the end here, to, the, to a section called the prophets. And this section, as Jez said a little bit, it doesn't really add to the narrative. The prophets we're looking at doesn't add to the story at all, really. Last week we, uh, we ended with Jez speaking on the story of the kings going bad, of God's people being in exile, uh, and then slowly going back to their land. And the prophets don't really add to that story at all. What they do is, though, they interpret the story for us. They interpret it. What's going on? The prophets actually speak a direct word from God. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone chosen by God to speak his message, is their mouthpiece to the people. And the majority of the prophets actually start speaking around this exile time. That's when they start speaking mostly, around this exile time. And before the exile, they'll, they'll speak this message of, uh, of judgment, of warning, of, of God's people need to listen to God, otherwise they will be exiled. During the exile, they remind the people of God's people of why they're there, and they still need to repent and turn back to him and listen to him, and remind them that God has not left them or been defeated. They're not in exile because God, a bigger God has defeated the God of Israel, but actually it's God's plan to put them to, to exile. Then after exile and during exile also, they, they speak of a greater day, a greater future hope. So the message of the prophets is really judgment and hope. It's judgment and hope. And as we look at the prophets today, we'll hear God speaking of judgment and of God being this holy God who is not to be messed with, but is to be uh, treated with awe and respect and worship. And they also speak a message of hope. 
the prophets will speak of this day of, 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 uh, of where God will gather his people again, where he will re- rescue and restore his people, where they can be his people, having access to him, having a relationship with him, be his, in his place, safe, secure forever, living under his good rule, delighting in him, obeying from the heart and flourishing his humanity, which was God's intention back here in creation. This message of hope is speaking of this one day this will happen. And this day is sure and it is certain, as certain as a holiday or, or a birthday party coming. Because God said so. And all of creation is heading towards this day of hope, of where God will restore all things. Looking forward to this future time that we can be sure of, where God rescues his people. And the question is, if this is where all of creation is heading, if, if all of creation is heading towards this day of hope, this restoration, this, this, this day of rescue, the question I think that, that these prophets ask us or we can ask ourselves is, do we live in light of this day? Do you look forward to this day? Like my daughter with her birthday. Like a holiday you've planned. Do you look forward to this day? Does it give you joy? Does it shape how you live now? Does it shape what decisions you make, what you live for? Do you live in light of God's biggest story, knowing how it's going to end? Or do you live as if it's not going to happen at all? Here's the question we're going to ponder and look at today. But we need to recap, because we are looking at a story. In case you haven't been here, we've, we've gone from, from creation here right through to here in five weeks. We've, we've gone through a lot of material that's worth... Uh, Getting a bit of a recap. So uh, we're going to look at this, but I want to I get you involved with this. In my small group, we've been doing the timeline. We have a great competition, and one guy's really into it and really super competitive over it. A bit too much, but anyway. Uh, but I want to get you guys involved. So week one, we looked at creation. Who can tell me things we saw in creation? And Jeremy has his lollies in his hand now. He's ready to go again because they're for prizes that I gave to hand out. Who, uh, who can tell me just one thing we saw in creation? It's good, Faf, good job. He gets one there, Jez. That's, you're under that. You're under that. It's good. God made all things good. Anything else we saw? What is it? What sort of lollies are they? Don't give them to Paul. That's just the... Anyway. Anything else we saw? God made all things good. Go again, Faf, for me. God made it. There you go. Lollies to him. He made humans in his image. And it was good, and we were God's people in God's place under God's good rule. That's what we saw. It's our God's intentions for creation back here. Week two, we move to the fall. What do we see here in the fall? Yeah, Adam and Eve rebelling. That's, that's your wife. What well I'm man. <laughs> right on. Good job. Adam and Eve sinning against God. They ate the fruit that God told them not to, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they decided what was good and what was evil. And they decided and said, God, you're not the boss. We are Adam and Eve were kicked out and separated from God. How do we see the effects of sin play out after that? Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6. Anyone jump in that? What is it? Murder. Yep. I'm not sure it was worth. Anyway, what is, what is it? Good one, Mick. They started wearing clothes. They were shame. That's right. They were shame. They wanted to hide. Exactly, right? And then we saw the, the Cain and Abel. We saw murder there. We saw Lamech, who was accumulating wise for himself and bragging how powerful he was. Then we saw, we saw God grieved in Genesis 6 that he'd made all things. Humanity's wickedness was so bad, he was grieved he made, he made people. He sent the flood, Noah, and he had to reboot humanity again. He wanted to start again. But we saw at the end of that that Noah was just as, just as evil. That the, the problem of sin was in the heart. 
he got drunk and did something really crazy with his family. Who knows what that was? Anyway, we'll leave that and go on, right? Week three, we saw Abraham. What do we see with Abraham? Anyone? Promises. Good one. <laughs> right on, right on. We saw God's promises. What are the promises? Anyone know the promises? Where three of them? Well done, Faf, again. Look at this. You've got some more lollies. Land, family, blessing. We saw land, family, and blessing. This is the start of God's rescue plan for humanity to restore them back to his good purposes. Land, family, and blessing. We saw God made a covenant with Abraham, and he grew that on. And we saw this, this promise of family grow from Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and it moves on. We see a lot of failure, though, still within these family. And the sin problem is still there. Week four, we saw Moses, or as a guy in my MC calls him Big Mo. Anyway, we saw Moses. And what do we learn? What do we see through Moses? Anyone want to throw things out about Moses? Burning bush. Yeah, exactly. God met him, and God met him face to face, which was a big thing. And Moses was not confident at all. Mick, what do you got for me? But think of Moses. Well done, Mick. You're on fire down there, man. And uh, we saw God rescue His people through slavery, through Moses leading them through the Exodus. He redeemed them, and then gave them the law how to live as His people. And that's what we saw. We saw Jesus being pointed to as a Passover lamb. It's fulfilling the law as well. Then last week, week five, we, saw, we covered a lot of territory. We saw Joshua. What else did we see after that? We saw kings. Yeah, what did we see from kings, Mark? I'm going to ask you a question back. What else did we see from kings? Yep, the temple. We saw a downward spiral of judges. Split in two as well. We saw the split of the kingdom, which is, which is just here. And we saw a downward spiral of judges that had got worse and worse and worse. God sent a king. Uh, the people wanted a king. They got Saul. He was no good. They got David, who was a king after God's own heart. And then we saw eventually the kings went down and we saw the split of the kingdom. And the people were exiled and they were left in a land where they were ruined. Good job. Thank you, Jeremy. Well done. Jeremy, the clap. Well done. Well done. And we really see, and we, we, we ended up down here. Where, uh, the, where the northern kingdom was, was, was wiped out by Assyria in 722, and we saw down here that the, the two southern uh, tribes, Benjamin and Judah, in 586 were exiled by Babylon. And we saw that that's the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, and they eventually are, take, are put back into their land 80 years later, but things aren't as they seem, and the question of God's people, place, and uh, under rule are all, are all over the shop. So that's where we're up to at the moment. Now we come to this section called the Prophets. As I said, we're not adding to the narrative, we're going to interpret it and see, what it's, and see what God is doing in this. And a prophet is someone, like I said, is like Moses. So God picks someone and then says, you will speak on my behalf to the people. And this section of the Bible is called the prophets. And often, I think a lot of us open the Bible, we land a prophet and go, nah, too hard, moving on, right? If you land in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, like, what is this about? I'm moving on. But I think if we do that, you miss out on so much good stuff of who God is and his character. And so you have major prophets, three major prophets, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. You've got minor prophets, more like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and so on. And uh, that, that's sort of the, the prophet section here. But I want to try and help you out with this section and show you what this is about and how to read it and see how you can get some, so much good stuff about who God is and what he is doing in our world. But let me show you this. This may help. I want to show you some context. This little table that I got from Jacob which is really helpful. And so understanding the prophets, who they're speaking to, what's going on in Israel's history, 
Uh, and whether it's the, the northern tribe or the, the southern tribe will just help you understand. So here in this table we have here, you have the northern kingdoms, right? The ten tribes that went up north, up here, you have that tribe, those tribes, and the, the prophets that speak to them are people like Amos, Hosea, and Jonah. And they're going to speak a message of, of turn back to God, otherwise judgment is coming. And they eventually don't, and in 722, as we've heard, Assyria wipes them out. And then we have the southern kingdom, which is, which is down here, which continue on, uh, which stay in Jerusalem where God told them to stay. Uh, the prophets that speak to them are, are prophets like um, uh, Obadiah and Joel and Isaiah and Micah. And then during the exile time, you've got prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, and they speak to this southern tribe saying, you're going to go to exile because you have, uh, you have rebelled against God, but turn back to him. And also, as you, as you hear them speak, they speak a message of hope. That it's not forever. It's going to purify you to turn back to your God. And you get some really beautiful books in here. A book like Lamentations. Have you read Lamentations before? Lamentations is a book written by Ezekiel, three chapters long, by Ezekiel, as he's suffering. As he's going, what is going on, God? Why am I here? And it's a book that you can read and think, how do I suffer well? How do I live when things aren't going well? How do I relate to God? One of my favorite books of the Bible is a book called Habakkuk. It's a book that I read when my dad was dying of cancer, that I read through. And it's this idea of Habakkuk knows that, they, he's a, that Israel and he is about to get destroyed. And he relates to God in light of that truth coming. That's what the prophets do. There's amazing books, how to live well during hard times. Then you get books like Nahum and Zephaniah. Uh, and uh, that are written, sorry, then you get sort of books like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're written after the exile, about expectations and future days as well. And all these prophets, as I said, revolve around the exile. And I think knowing when they're written, who they're written to, and their message will help you to understand them as you read them. And uh, you can get way more out of it. And as I said, it's a message of judgment and a message of hope. And the prophets interpret what God is doing when it seems like things are out of control. I love, the, uh, I love the show, Survivor, as uh, some of you know, in the future years. Um, Shane's season just finished. Who watched it? Yeah, good. How did Shane win? Seriously, I'm going to rant about that for a bit. Uh, Shane win. Anyhow, I don't know. Uh, Sean played such a better game. Shane was just, he was like a, I think they felt sorry for it, like as, as his old grandma. I don't know what's going on there. Look, I'll say it. I'm happy to, I'm happy to own that. Sean made all the moves. Shane did nothing. Shane was targeted. But anyway, look, I, can, I have peace about that. I'm going to move on, right? Um, but what I love about this show is they've got a, a little um, a side video called the Jury Villa. I don't know if you've seen this before. Jury Villa. And with the Jury Villa, they basically, it's like behind the scenes of what has gone on. And so when someone is voted out of the show, they go to a place called Jury Villa where all the other players have been out of the show as well are there together. And they have them all staying in one place. And the game's now sort of finished where they're voted out, and they film them just talking to one another. And they talk about uh, what sort of things they did, their motivation behind what, what they did, uh, why they voted each other out, what was going on. It's like behind the scenes of the show and what is going on in each player's mind throughout the show. And it's, it's, I really enjoy it because you get to see the motivations of people and what's going on. And I think the section of the Bible called the Prophets is a little like that. We've just gone through the story of the Bible. We've moved really fast. And it's all spiraled down, going towards uh, the end where kings go bad. But what's God doing here? Aren't these God's people? Isn't God going to rescue his people? 
and look after them? So what is God doing here? Is he still in control? Is he still going to rescue them? What's going to happen to his plan? I want to say the prophets help you understand what God is doing in his character as all of this takes place throughout the story of the Bible. I don't want to take you to one of the prophets now for the, for the, sort of the, the, end of the, to the end of the sermon to the book of Isaiah. I want to try and walk you through Isaiah and show you this. Remember I said the, the prophets are about judgment and hope and God's warning his people, come back to me or judgment will come. They don't listen, judgment comes. But he also offers a message of hope, of lasting hope. And Isaiah speaks of a king coming that will come and rescue them and will lead them and fulfill all the promises that God has made to, to humanity. But I want to show you this. Isaiah is basically divided in two parts. You've got Isaiah 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66. The first 1 to 39 is more about judgment and 40 to 66 is more about hope. But I want to show you the first half first, uh, 1 to 39. But look, have a look at chapters 1, 1 to 9 with me. It's on the screen behind me. It says this. This is God speaking to his people. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful na- a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have, have utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. For the, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, and, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts has not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You can hear God speaking and his emotion about his people Israel, behind the scenes of of what God is like. He says, children, I have reared up, that I have brought up. You've rebelled against me. It's like this fatherly figure who loves his kids so much, who invests in them, who provides everything for them. And you get his heart of what he feels about his people. They've rebelled against me. And God says here that a foreign nation, will, he'll bring them to judge them. And they're their place pretty much desolate, he says. And God's telling them what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And he wants, to know that he wants these people to know when they're invaded and defeated, it's no accident. This is no accident. He hasn't left them. He hasn't turned a blind eye. He's there in control in the hope they will return. Isaiah speaks of exile, a refining fire idea. He wants to refine them with this and bring them back. And God sees his people, what they're doing, and he's had enough. See, God cares how they live and act and how they relate to one another. Have a look at 13, uh, 15 from Isaiah. It says this. It says, bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of, of convocations. I cannot, in, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. And I'm, I'm wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And here we read God's passion. And he hates, and he hates their religion. He hates their religion. He wants their hearts, not their outward, outward signs of how good they're going. And he identifies their arrogance, the way they treat the poor, the fatherless, the widows, the way they don't pursue love and justice. And God said, I've had enough. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. And he's going to judge. And as you read this, you see the character of God come out. You see that he's holy. You see that he will not be, cannot be and will not be messed with. You get this beautiful chapter in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And you see the holiness of God here in this chapter 6. It's worth reading. And it's a vision God, Isaiah gets of being in a temple with God. He sees God face to face, this temple. And there are angels around and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's there. And in chapter 6, verse 5, he's there. And this is Isaiah's response being this presence of God. He says this. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah catches a glimpse of God, and he freaks out in light of his holiness and his goodness. And he says, I am not worthy. I can't be here. And you get the character of God here in Isaiah. Who God is. And this talk of judgment is reminding us of God. He is holy and he is powerful and full of glory and not to be messed with and he is to be listened to and obeyed. And he will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate injustice. He will punish. He cannot be fooled or deceived. And how people live, it matters to him. He sees it. You cannot play church with God. He doesn't just want your religiosity. He despises it, he says, because he wants your heart. And we see this in the first half of Isaiah, and this is played out again and again in the first 39 chapters. It will keep repeating itself again and again and again. And it's God purifying himself of people, and in more and more detail. But as I said, it's not just a book, a message of judgment, there's a message of hope. We read of God speaking this message of hope, and in chapter 7, we read of God speaking of a, of a king coming, his king coming, who he names Emmanuel, which really means God with us. This king will come and God names Emmanuel, which means God with us. This king that is coming is God himself. And this rule will be, uh, his rule will be uh, uh, setting free his people. And he will rule with justice and peace. And chapters 40 to 66 unpack this message of hope in more and more and more detail. It develops it. We read of God restoring a people. Let me show you chapter 41, 8 to 10. It's God saying this. The, the tone has, has, has hugely changed. It says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's no talk of judgment, just hope and restoration now. Sentence 13 and 14 of uh, the same chapter say this, For I the, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. That intimate language of holding their hand like a father to a child. It's I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. 
Chapter 43 goes on and speaks of this new exodus idea. Of God saving them and saying, I love you, you're my people, I care for you, I'm your saviour. Don't be afraid because I'm your king. God's speaking this rescue plan. But how's he going to do it? What's he going to do? How will he redeem his people? I want to take you to one last passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 53. A well-known passage. And in the back half, sorry, in the second half of Isaiah, uh, God speaks of a servant figure. Again and again and again, a servant figure. And this servant figure is going to restore God's people. And this servant figure, God says, is empowered by God's spirit. And it sounds a lot like chapter 7, this, this Emmanuel-type figure. So it's like this servant is both servant and king at the same time. He's both a servant and he's a king, empowered by God's spirit and he's God at the same time. It's who he is. And he will lead the people and restore them. How will he do that? Well, it's quite surprising. Let me show you this. It's Isaiah 53. If you've got a Bible, this is so worth reading with me. You've got it on your phone or whatever. Isaiah 53, uh, Senators 3 to 6, what Jez read for us before. We read this servant is despised and not esteemed. We read in sentence 4 that this servant bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him and stricken him, smitten by God and afflicted. Sentence 5 we read this servant, but he was pierced for our transgressions or our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our failings. Upon him was a chastisement that poured us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Servant, this, this servant king, he dies. He restores people to God by dying. And he pays the penalty for humanity's sin. And by his death, Isaiah says, his, by his wounds, he says, we are healed. We are restored. We are given peace, says Isaiah uh, says there. And peace with God. Have a look at what Isaiah says in sentence 6, which basically summarizes the whole problem of the story of the Bible, really, and our problem. It says, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way. We've rebelled against our creator. We've moved away from him. Done what we wanted to do. But the servant has come to fix this problem of sin. Look how we, what he says. He says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. The servant deals with the biggest problem of Israel, of our biggest problem. It has caused us to be separated from God. Our sin. Then Isaiah 53, 11, summarize it all. Have a look, it says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And, sh- and he shall bear the iniquities. It's through this servant that we are made right with God, righteous with God. As he bears our sin, as he bears our iniquity, that's how this one saves. This is how this servant king who is God saves. And this is Isaiah's message of hope. It's his message of restoration. The whole Bible has been pointing towards this one moment of this servant king coming. Of coming and dying and taking away sin and restoring us back to being God's people. And Isaiah... And all who read Isaiah in the Old Testament were looking forward to this one figure, this, as the Bible calls this messianic or this Messiah coming, this servant king coming, who would bring this day, who would bring this restoration, who would die, who would be the servant and the king, who would die for the sins of the world. And we know, of course, that's Jesus. I've mentioned before, I'm not a very patient person. I don't like waiting. I remember when... Um, 
when Katie found out that she was pregnant with our first child, Jet. I can still picture finding out and being in our house in Gladesville and um, her telling, telling me, and I remember both I remember hugging her and I remember jumping around our lounge room together whilst we were hugging, like in this weird little dance we had going on. I don't know what was going on, but it was, I can still picture that. It was so, so happy that we had found out that we were having a little uh, a child. But I had to wait nine months to meet him. I had to wait nine months to meet him. I remember going to our ultrasound at 18 weeks and being in the, in the, in the room and seeing the, a little, little screen and seeing my little boy and, I, and then telling me that it was going to be my son. And uh, I remember being in tears as we were both in tears as we, as we saw our little boy for the first time. But I wanted to meet my son now. I didn't want to wait any longer. I wanted to wrestle with him, play with him, hug him now. I wanted to teach him sport and watch rugby with him. But I didn't want to wait any longer. I, I didn't want to wait. But I knew he was coming. I knew I had to wait for him to come. And then I could enjoy him. The people of God, the best of Isaiah, they knew a servant king was coming. The Messiah was coming to give them hope, to restore them, to rescue them. But they had to wait for him to arrive. They had to wait. They had to wait for King Jesus to come. But then he arrived. I want to take you to the New Testament now and meet a guy called Simeon. I don't know if you've heard of Simeon before. Simeon and Anna. Luke 2. It's really short. You might have skimmed over him before, but I think Simeon's an amazing person. We read of Simeon, and Simeon was a man who believed Isaiah's prophecies, and he was waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. He was waiting for the arrival of this king, the servant king. And God said to to Simeon, Simeon, you will not die before you see with your own eyes this servant king, the Messiah, the salvation coming. And he was really old. He was in the temple one day, praying, worshipping God. And then eventually two young teenage parents walked in with a little baby. And this is Simeon's response as God told him, there he is. Have a look at this from Luke 2, 27 to 32. It says, Simeon, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the Lord required, Simeon took the baby, took him in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You can hear the excitement in Simeon's voice. He says, Lord, take me now, I can die in peace. I'm happy to die now. Because I have seen what I've been waiting for my whole entire life. I've seen Jesus, the King. I've seen your salvation. He's arrived. I read that, and I read that this week. And I don't know about you, but I feel a a little rebuked by his response. By his excitement and his enthusiasm over Jesus. And the fact that salvation has come. I wonder how many of us would, would say with Simeon, yeah, I, I get what Simeon's saying. I feel the same way about Jesus as Simeon does. I too am filled with joy that my Savior has arrived. That my sins have been paid in full. Can you say that? I often feel my heart grow cold towards the sheer awe and wonder of the gospel. And I get it. Look, we, we didn't have to wait for our king to arrive. We didn't live through exile. We didn't live through the temple sacrifice. We didn't have to, we didn't have to go to the temple each day and, and, and offer things for, for our atonement of sin. 
But I wonder, is that, is that, an, is that an excuse to not glory in the wonder of the gospel? I would say, no, it's not. I wonder, have you lost your thankfulness, your wonder, your awe that Jesus, the servant king, God in the flesh, came to rescue you? Have you lost that? I know I have at points. Now you just, you, we did not deserve Jesus to come. We, we were his enemies. We were so far off. We rebelled. We turned against God. We were, we were on our path towards hell. And God plucked us. He redeemed us. He sought you. He sought me. He says, here's my son. I will put him on the cross for you. And die in your place. And you are now my child. Does that grip your heart? Why have you grown cold to that? Have you heard this so many times? Yeah, I've heard this scam. I get it. I get it. Have you lost a sense of thankfulness? Do you read what Simeon says there about seeing, the sal- uh, seeing God's salvation? And do you resonate with that? Or do you go, oh, that's so far removed from what I feel about God? If, if this is where you're at, if you're cold towards Jesus, if you've lost your awe and wonder and there is a, there's very little thankfulness in your heart, we need to go back. We need to go back to the gospel, to the cross, and see who Jesus is, to meditate on, on what we have in him. Yeah, when you read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus writing letters to the churches. It's so applicable to us, I think. Jesus says in his churches, the letters, you have grown cold, you have lost your first love. The church of Laodicea, he says, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, so because you are that, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you treat me with disdain of what I did for you on the cross, I'll spit you out of my mouth. There are warnings in the scriptures of not growing cold towards the gospel. And we need to hear these warnings. But if we're to take a step back for a second and look at the message of the prophets, it's judgment and hope. I want to say it's the same message for us today. We're the same God today. And he is firstly one not to be messed with. He is powerful and holy and worthy of all praise and all worship. He is not to be treated lightly or flippantly. I want to encourage you today, if you do not know this God, can I encourage you to know him through his son. Don't, don't dismiss him. Don't wait. He loves you. He cares for you. And he is calling you to know him. And he has set a day, a day of judgment, where you will see him face to face and every knee will bow, Philippians 2 says, and give an account for how they have treated him and his son Jesus. I want to say, hear this today and do something about it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you and I to worship him in trembling and awe, not to mess with him, to play church with him, to, do, to pursue religiosity with him. He's, not to be, he's the sovereign Lord. He knows all and sees all, and he wants your heart. The question is, does he have it? But God is also a God of hope, of sure hope. And here's my question. Does, does your life look any different from those around you who do not have this hope? Do your decisions and how you live, how you treat others, what you do in work, what, what sort of work you do, do they look different to anyone else around you? Seeing that you know how the story ends. The servant king has come, he's died on the cross to redeem to make you right, and he rose physically from the death, guaranteeing your resurrection. He's guaranteeing through his resurrection, that you will live forever. How does that shape you? 
How does that affect what you pursue in life? You know, knowing that the be- your best is yet to come. I love that phrase. The best of your for you is yet to come. And it will all happen down here. Heaven is your home, that you will spend eternity there. This, is but, this life is but a blip on the radar of eternity. Where do you invest your time and energy and treasure? Is it the blip on the radar or is it down here where you will spend eternity worshipping your God? God calls his followers to live as citizens of heaven now, living with and making decisions in light of eternity. That is the hope we have. It's a sure hope. I want to encourage you to let every single decision you do and everything you do day by day to be in light of the hope you have of the new creation. Living and loving as free, redeemed citizens of a better kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for the gospel. I want to pray for my heart right now, for the hearts that are in front of me here, that you, Holy Spirit, would revive our hearts. That you would give us a renewed passion for the gospel and a renewed thankfulness for all that we have in Jesus. We want to say sorry for the time we have grown cold towards you, Jesus. You gave it all for us. You love us. You have redeemed us. You gave your life on the cross. You hung there and said, it is finished. And so often our response is, eh. Lord, revive us and help us just to be thankful for all that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us then to live in light of that hope, that sure hope that guarantees the resurrection. Help us to live and make decisions and love others, pursue justice, care for the poor, the marginalized, the needy, to share the hope of the gospel we have with the world that longs to know in light of where we are going and this treasure that we have. Help us to go all in, Jesus live for you and to live for your kingdom now. We're going to pray this message will be a message of both hope for those who need it but a message of, of stirring up for those who have grown cold. We'll take this and use this as you will. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have some minerals.